Welcome to the Side Hustle Project, a podcast where we explore the nitty-gritty details behind what it takes to start and grow a profitable side hustle. I'm your host, Ryan Robinson, and in this podcast, I'm bringing you interviews with entrepreneurs, best-selling authors, CEOs, investors, and people just like you who are building and profiting from interesting side hustles. In today's episode, we're talking to Kendrick Shope, creator of Authentic Selling, a leading sales training program for entrepreneurs where she's responsible for helping her clients generate millions of dollars in additional revenue for their businesses. Originally from a tiny little town of just 4,000 people called Sweetwater, Tennessee, Kendra grew up in a very traditional American Southern community and found herself attending college at the University of Tennessee in the late 1990s. It wasn't until after she graduated from college that she began to find her true calling as a top performing salesperson pretty much straight out the gates when she landed her first job in sales at the paper manufacturer Georgia Pacific. Kendra would quickly find herself moving up the ranks and over into pharmaceutical sales for the giant GlaxoSmithKline, where she took one of their lowest performing territories and turned it around to become the number one selling district. Now, after a few more years in pharmaceutical sales, Kendrick decided to axe her day job and start formalizing the sales mentorship she'd already been doing into what's become a full-time sales coaching business. Now, fast forward to today, and she's worked with more than 600 entrepreneurs to reframe what it means to sell your product or service and achieve higher bottom lines. In this episode, Kendrick and I talk about what her sales coaching process looks like when she works with entrepreneurs, from tweaking your approach to relationship building, to identifying gaps in the marketplace, redefining your target customer, and more. We dive into the conversation she recently had on the Steve Harvey show about how sales is inherently different for women today, and how both men and women can use this better understanding to sell more effectively. We cover what it takes to build a scalable sales process for any type of business, how to problem solve your way around closing a tricky sale, the most interesting deal Kendrick's ever been a part of, and more. As always, you can find everything we mentioned in today's episode in the show notes at ryrob.com slash podcast. That's spelled R-Y-R-O-B dot com slash podcast. Let's get into today's interview with Kendrick Shope. Kendrick, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. Yes, and we are here today to talk primarily about sales, how to be a more effective seller. But first, before we dig into that, I want to rewind the clock a little bit and talk about you. So where are you originally from? I am originally from Sweetwater, Tennessee. There is really a place called Sweetwater, Tennessee. (laughs) A tiny little town just, just south of Knoxville. All right. I like it. What was it like growing up there? You know, uh, it was fantastic. It, it is certainly not everybody's cup of tea. It is your very uh, traditional Southern town. Everybody knows everybody's business. You're related to half the people there. My family's been in Sweetwater for a long time, but there are also just some really charming things about being in a small town. Everybody's looking out for you and, and uh, it's this family atmosphere Sweetwater is still very much home. My roots are there. I love it. They are, it's the most supportive group of people I've ever met. But it's pretty stereotypical, kind of Friday night flights-ish. You know, this football team was a big deal. The cheerleaders were a big deal, that kind of thing. How small are we talking here for context? Uh, 4,000 people. Ooh, yes, that is small. Yeah. (laughs) Wow, that's awesome. So how often do you go home? Is it a regular occurrence for you? Yeah, absolutely. So both of our families are still there. So we try to go, not not as often as I would like, but you know, I try to get home once every two months at least. Uh, it is still home. We'll always be home. They're some of the best people in the world. 
I can relate to a lot of what you were saying there. I'm also from a small town now, small being more like 40,000. Um, but oh, yeah. you know, cousin is a sheriff. Uncle used to be the mayor. It's one of those kind of situations where you're driving around town. And you're like, Oh, there's someone I'm related to. Oh, there's a friend. <laughs> exactly. Yes. You get it. Uh huh. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so Kendrick, you kind of quickly move out of small town um, that you're from, it seems like, when you go to college. So what was your decision like to leave being from a small town? Why did you choose to do that? Well, I don't know that I chose, if I'm being honest. I was a third generation University of Tennessee graduate. And I think from the moment I was born, it, I was just sort of preordained that I was going to go to the University of Tennessee because everybody in my family went to the University of Tennessee. So I don't begrudge that at all. But I never looked at a different university. I never considered another college. Knoxville's 45 minutes, 40, 45 minutes from Sweetwater. So it was close enough to home to where I could be home if I needed to be. So I don't know that that was really my official leaving a small town because I was still pretty attached and pretty, pretty well rooted into Sweetwater, even though I was in college. And what, when did your interest in sales kind of start? Was it something that you like picked up in college? Was it your first job? Did you kind of stumble into the career of sales? Tell us about kind of the origins of your interest there. Yeah, it's a, it is a, it's, it's, it's an ironic, I started to say funny, but it's an ironic story. When I was young and I mean like, gosh, 10, 11 years old, some, I remember my grandfather saying to me, you are a natural born salesman. You're going to be a salesman when you grow up. And I remember thinking, a salesman? I am going to be a movie star, not a salesman. Like, no, no, <laughs> sir. Not for me. And then, yeah, I did sort of stumble into it. So, I, you know, I, I always really was motivated by the what we call in sales the carrot. So, when... Mm-hmm when our schools would have the cookie sale or the whatever, I wanted the jam box. I wanted the thing that the top salesperson got. So I was pretty motivated by that. But I fell into it after I graduated from the University of Tennessee. I had a psychology degree. And what the heck are you going to do with a psychology degree? Not much. So I went into sales and I did a little bit of everything. Little telephone selling. I sold telemarketed. I sold credit cards, I sold building products, and I eventually sold pharmaceuticals. So I sort of stumbled into it because I've got a good personality and I had nothing else to do. All right. Fair enough. <laughs> I wish I could tell you it was all part of some master plan and I had the, you know, the, the vision to know what I was heading towards. I had no idea. Hey, I got to say, anyone who claims that their entire life's been the result of a master plan is uh, making a few things up, I'd say. That's true. Yes. So I want to I want to shift gears a little bit now. I, I feel like the word sales often conjures up this kind of funny, cheesy image of like a used car salesman. Maybe he's got ketchup stains on his shirt. Uh, someone who's basically straight out of the movies. Now, why does selling have this inherently kind of you know negative or maybe even slimy connotation to you know I guess not everybody, but at least to some people. Yeah, it's a great question. And, 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 you know, I have the privilege of speaking all over the world and I, I always shout out what comes to mind when you hear the word selling. And, and you'll have that stereotypical person who says it's fun, but the majority of people say exactly what you say. Icky, sleazy, slimy, gross, bully, used car salesman. And that comes from two things. Number one, we've all had a rotten sales experience. We've all felt like we've been bullied into buying something. The product or service didn't do what we thought it wanted to do, or maybe we felt like we needed to take a shower after we left because it was so gross. And none of us want to be that way. 
But the other reason that it feels that way is years ago, and we're talking hundreds of years ago, when the, the traveling medicine man would come into towns or villages, you know, he would say, I have got this bottle of elixir and it's going to make you 10 feet tall and bulletproof. And you're going to be hotter. You're going to be thinner. You're going to be more confident. And people would buy it and they would drink the whole bottle. It was alcohol. And then the traveling salesman would go out of town and the next day everybody would feel like death because they were hung over. And so that's really one of the first representations of uh, this, this, this dishonest salesperson. And it's been passed down from generation to generation to generation. I find that so fascinating, especially that it's been something that's continued for, you know, potentially thousands of years. Yeah. Really. Um, now, you talk a lot about something that you call authentic selling. So can you, can you explain to us, you know, your definition of what authentic selling is? Absolutely. To understand what authentic selling is, you have to understand what the definition of the word selling is. So the black and white, if you Google it, you're going to find this or some variation of this. Selling is the exchange of money for a product or service. So think about that. The exchange of money for a product or service. There's nothing icky, sleazy, slimy, gross, pushy, used car salesman gross about that. It's just, you know, it's just a business transaction. So it's our preconceived notions about selling that, that give it that feeling. The exchange of money for a product or service, which means if you don't have sales, your business does not make money. Selling is an integral part of selling. Authentic selling is if we look at selling just a little bit deeper for what it is at its core. If people don't know you, they won't buy from you. And if they don't buy from you, your business is broke, but those people also are not getting the help they need. They're not getting the product they need. They're not finding a solution to their problem. So at its core, selling is helping. Your people who want to buy your product, your service, your whatever are out there waiting on you. And that's what authentic, authentic selling focuses on. Your people are out there. It's your job to go out there and tell them how your product or service can help them. Selling is helping. I love that kind of, you know, it's a very logical progression getting to that point where it's, you know, selling is helping people. So when, when you're someone who has got a brand new product, or let's say you're trying to validate the idea for potential business that you want to get into, um, someone listening here today is probably in, in those shoes right now. Um, how do you start if you're, you know, completely cold, you have no personal contacts who might be a good prospect for what you want to sell, what you want to validate. How do you start by kind of, you know, planting the seeds for creating those relationships? You know, it, it seems like something you can't just go out and immediately sell a ton of um, completely cold. So how do you start fostering those relationships? It's a great question. And it's really one of the biggest mistakes that I see business owners or entrepreneurs make it, it, now. That's what I call the modern entrepreneur is, uh, and I'm guilty of some of this as well, but you, you get an idea, you leave your corporate job. You know, for me, it was a top performing sales career for a Fortune 500 company. And I have this idea and I think every, I'm going to build a website and everybody's just going to come. And, and seven years later, I can tell you that's the furthest thing from what happens because you have to do, Ryan, just what you're talking about, right? You have to seed plant. You have to prospect. And so realizing that you have got to say to people, I am here, I can help you before they want to buy from you is, is, has to be part of the business plan, sales plan, marketing plan. But, and I'll tell you how to do that. But before you do that, you have to do one step first, and that is you as the provider or the seller of a product or service, you need to be so sold on the difference that your product or service makes that you are 
confident in the promises that you make and the results that you say the product or service will deliver. Now, I, I don't mean you have to say, if you sign up for my class, you're going to make $5 million. No, absolutely not. We never want to promise something that, that we can't inherently deliver on. However, you got to be sold on the difference that signing up for that class or whatever is going to make in the lives of your customers. Because if you're not sold, you can't prospect. You can't tell people. You'll talk yourself out of it. So that's kind of the precursor to prospecting. Does that make sense? Oh, totally. I think that's, you know, it makes perfect sense. You have to be sold on what you're offering before you can go out and, you know, convince people with that same level of conviction, confidence, enthusiasm. Um, so, yeah, that's, I find that fascinating. Yeah. And, and, and really, I mean, it seems sort of counterintuitive to say, however, a lot of people are not able to bring the right enthusiasm and the right conviction because they're not sold. So, you know, a, a great exercise if you're, if, you're, if you're not sold is to, or if you're not sure, is to get out a sheet of paper and write down all of the promises. So if it's a course, you know, six weeks of online learning, 14 worksheets. If it's a product, reduce your wrinkles, um, get rid of your laugh lines, and then draw a line down the sheet of the paper and tell me why all that stuff matters. Why do I want a six-week course? What's it going to do for me? Why do I want 14 worksheets? What's it going to do for me? Why do I want my wrinkles to appear uh, less visible? What's it going to do for me? And, and then you can see the benefits of what you're selling. The next step is, which was really your question, is how do you go out and begin prospecting? Well, mm-hmm. it's a great question. So the first thing is you have to realize that a whole lot happens before you ask for the sale. Prospecting, engagement, and getting to the problem. So those are the first three steps of selling. Prospecting, engagement, and getting to the problem. Prospecting is all about you being of service in some way. We've all done this before. We've all gone to a website, Nordstrom, Target. Um, it doesn't even have to be a, a, a seller of, of items. I lost my train of thought, a seller of items like that. But we've all gone to a website before and given our email address to get some freebie, to get some discount. That's prospecting. That is, that is, that is saying, hey, I got something you might need. I'm going to give it to you free. So that's step number one is what can you give away for free? And every industry does it. Makeup does this. You go to the, the, the makeup counter, they give you some samples. Baskin Robbins does it. They give you a sample of the ice cream to see which, which flavor you want to try. Somehow, some way, people are giving samples or a, a view into the product before you buy it. Real estate, let's go look at the house before we buy it. So prospecting starts with giving something away for free. Right. And as, as someone who's a qualified buyer, you can also self-select yourself by walking up to the makeup counter and grabbing a sample. Um, exactly. So as an example. Absolutely. Yes, 100%. So what comes next in your process? You mentioned engagement and then selling. What does the engagement component typically look like? Well, just because you give somebody a sample doesn't mean that they know you like you trust you. And those are words that are overused, but it's the truth. Research shows that it takes seven to 10 touches with any business or brand before someone, a potential buyer, trusts you enough to give you their money and time. And we don't think about this enough. You know, yes, people are giving you their money, but they're also giving you their time and time is their most precious resource. They cannot make more of it. So I believe that as the seller or provider of a product or service, we need to think about that. If somebody is standing here using my product, if somebody is is taking my course or whatever, they are taking time away from being with their kids, from doing what they love. Now, 
that's fine, but we just need to honor that people are not going to jump from free to buying. We need some level of engagement, and this can happen through all different ways. So, an example could be, you know, just a, a, a follow-up, a series of follow-up emails where the people are getting to know you, where you're getting to know them. It could be, you know, in the online world, there's a lot of uh, free webinars or join the community. And that's where people get to touch the brand. It's where they get to engage with the brand. Uh, let's say that your daughter, my da- I have a daughter, your daughter wants a, my daughter wants a computer for Christmas. I'm not just going to walk in and buy the first computer I see. I'm going to research them. I'm going to read about them. I may go and test a few out. That's all a touch with the brand or the business before I buy. That's what engagement means. A touch that does not result in buying, but an opportunity to interact with the product or the service. Right. And as you said, this can happen, you know, in person, over the phone, over email, you know, even even kind of like automated emails too, right? Like someone can have yeah. kind of like an email sequence that's built to, to, to build relationships with people and get them to respond or answer questions. I've seen this done in so many different clever ways over the years. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's where people get frustrated. You know, I think lots of times people will think, well, I gave this amazing free thing away and not in a bad way, but why aren't people buying? Well, People aren't buying because we're asking for their money and their time and we haven't engaged with them enough. Prospecting and and engaging are two of the most overlooked steps of running a business that exists today. I couldn't agree more. Now, I do want to shift gears a little bit on you again, um, because just before we hopped on this interview, um, I was watching a video of an interview that you did on Steve Harvey's show recently, where you got to talk about selling strategies specifically for women, actually. Um, so first of all, can you just kind of give us a, an overview? How is selling different um, for women compared to men? It's a great question. And, you know, I always squirm a little bit in my seat when, when I'm asked about this. It's like one of those topics I sort of fell into and then I sort of squirm a little bit. But the fact of the matter is, if I'm being completely honest, I have no idea how it's different because I'm not a man. But I know what it's like to sell as a woman and be a woman and sell. And and I, I've done enough research or enough studying to, to know, and this is not rocket science, but the male brain and the female brain is different. The female brain changes every day, every day based on uh, hormones and based on what's going on, you know, physiologically in our body. The male brain does not. And so... It's it's one minute a woman and 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 people are going to hate this, but it's true. At least for me, one minute I may be like crying on the floor, smearing my mascara, and the next minute I'm as confident as Beyonce. I mean, we're just kind of we just are. That's what that's what being a woman is like. So, um, men and women traditionally, and I use that word very intentionally, traditionally like to sell differently. They get responses. They get what they want in different ways. Women typically do not like to be um, an aggressive salesperson. They don't typically like to go in and go for the close. I'm thinking of face-to-face selling immediately. They need to uh, do a little bit more of that engagement. Whereas traditional male style selling is go for the close. Always be closing. If you're not obsessed, you're not making a deal. Well, I don't know. That doesn't necessarily work for women all the time. Mm-hmm. So, and, and, and what's interesting is research actually shows that when women are engaging with people that the same neurochemicals are released in their brain as when they're having sex. So it's a pleasurable experience. In contrast, when they are selling or when they're having confrontation 
those neurochemicals are not released. For men, when men are in confrontation, the same neurochemicals are released as when they're having sex. So they enjoy confrontation more than men. I mean, it's just science. So we sell different. We prospect different. We engage different. We get to the end a little bit differently. Does that make sense? Totally does. And I think it makes a lot of sense too, based on who you're selling to, right? So not just your own style, but you know, how does the person that you're selling to want to be sold to? That's something that I feel like um, I've kind of felt throughout selling to different you know, men, women, different types of people, different levels of, um, you know, positions that people are at in companies. I feel like um, you kind of got to vary your approach based on how the person's responding in real time. Absolutely. And this actually is, a, is something that, that I talk about all the time. So we referenced email funnels, but, th- but the same would apply to selling face-to-face. You know, it, it, lots of times people will say, well, why isn't my email funnel working? Or why isn't my follow-ups at my automated, you know, whatever email chain working? And I'll say it's because you're writing to the same person every time. And most people think that's a good thing, but it's not. We need to vary our approaches. So I break this down into, into four colors, yellow, green, blue, and red. And yellow is either face-to-face or through email funnels. It's the conversation. It's you're telling a story. You're the social butterfly. And every email funnel needs that in it. Every salesperson needs to have that social butterfly tell a story in their arsenal. It may be a, a, this person went from to experience, but that's the yellow email. A red email is direct. It's to the point. It is three to five sentences. It is hey, fear of missing out, get in, get out. It is an aggressive male-dominated type cell. And then there are two more. A blue email or a blue sales pitch. So even if you're selling face-to-face, it's not conversational. It's based on data. It's based on statistics. It's based on testimonials. These people are analytical. They like to look at the data. They don't want any of the hype. They're not going to be motivated by fear of missing out. They're not going to be moved by your social story. And then finally, we have green. And green is the person who who sees the overarching benefit beyond just money. So it it, it may be, yes, I'm going to make more money or uh, I'm going to run a business that I love, but I'm also going to be able to take my daughter to school. I'm also going to be able to uh, take vacations. And and what people tell me all the time was, I've got all those in my personality. Mm -hmm. Yes, you do. And that's why we use all four in an email funnel or when you're selling face-to-face. You have to vary your approach based on who you're sitting across from. I was sitting over here nodding my head at every one of those descriptors <laughs> listed out. <laughs> that's good. So that's what I call, that's another tool. That's what I call the Dr. Dre tool. You know who Dr. Dre is, Ryan? No, I don't. You don't know Dr. Dre? Oh, you're too young. Okay, oh, so. Dr. Dre, the rapper. <laughs> so Dr. Dre uh, was part of NWA and then he went on yeah. to, to, to uh, sell beats to Apple, like the biggest Selling, I don't know, recording artists. I don't know. I don't know the statistics. Yeah. I need to know. Or just purchased sell. Apple made, I believe. Yeah, exactly. So um, in 1995, Dr. Dre had a song called Keep Their Heads Ringing. And I teach this tool. It's a sales tool. We, you want your customer's head ringing like Dr. Dre. It's a Dr. Dre tool. If they're head nodding, then you are doing something right. So we want to Dr. Dre our customers. <laughs> I love that. I love that so much. Um, I'm, I'm going to steal that one, by the way. <laughs> You're welcome to. Maybe you can teach it a little bit better than I did since I got tongue-tied. 
Now, I know something else that you've, you've talked a lot about through, you know, courses, speaking engagements, um, writing on the blog is creating a scalable sales process, not just something that, you know, works one off when you're selling to an individual, but breaks down when you try and sell to more people. And, and you've done this, I know yourself with your own business, you've helped tons of other entrepreneurs to do this through your courses, your classes, your speaking. Now, when you come in to help someone um, with revamping their sales process when either something clearly isn't working very, very well or they want to take their business to the next level, where do you typically start with them? Oh, this is a great question. So we start with what's working. I think that, I think that you know, the first thing we do is, great, I want to tell you, I, I want to see all the things that you're doing how you're doing them and what's working. Cause you know, the good old Southern saying, if it ain't broke, we're not going to fix it. We may tweak it, but we're not going to fix it. I think then the next step is usually what happens when I see a sales process, I can immediately tell you, uh, my, my friends call this my sales spotty sense, what needs to change. Um, nine times out of 10, if you want to increase your business, we need to add a follow-up process to what you're doing. Uh, that follow-up is, and, and you've heard me talk about this a lot, but follow-up is, is proven to double your business. I mean, it, it, it just is something that people don't know how to do well. And when you learn how to do it, it's a game changer. So that's going to be the first place I look. The second place I'm going to look is, is your sales conversation. How are you presenting the product or service? And that sales conversation may happen over a sales page, or it may happen on the phone, or it may happen in person. But if you, if you want to turn your process, you know, if you want to scale it, I need to see how you're having the sales conversation and are you using words that trigger the buyer to have an emotional response leading to buy. And nine times out of 10, people do not do that well. So those are the first two places. Well, the first three places I look. What are you doing well and what's working? Are you following up and what does that look like and how can we change it? And what's the sales conversation look like either on paper, in person, or wherever? I love that. You make it sound so simple. <laughs> oh, it is. It is so simple. So sales is not rocket science. That's, what, that's why I'm really good at it. It is very methodical. And, and I think you used the word earlier. It seems very logical. It's very logical. Mm -hmm. It is very step one, step two, step three, step four. It, it just is. I just happened to have done it my whole life. So I know how to do yeah. it. Yeah. And experience will make you better at selling ideally. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's the thing, you know, you asked in the beginning, well, well, you know, we joked about it being a master plan. It wasn't a master plan, but I'm fortunate because every step I took led me to getting more education with selling by accident. I graduated from two sales schools. I, you know, sold for three fortune 500 companies. I spent over a decade now, nearly two decades of my life selling. So that's, it is easy and anybody can do it, but you really can. You just have to be willing to learn the steps. Once you learn the steps, anybody can do it, which is good because it allows you to make money in your business. Mm-hmm. Kendrick, what's the most memorable deal that you've ever been a part of closing? What comes to mind first? <laughs> That's a hard question. Maybe I was hired by a bank fresh out of college. To mm -hmm. It was a startup bank. And I was hired to go get customers from the existing bank to the new bank. And when you were talking about people moving their money to a new bank and you're talking about gazillions of dollars or that's what it felt like to me, that's a hard sell. And it was a fun sell because I was young, was fresh out of college. And so I would take people to lunch and we would talk. And I always got so nervous right before I brought up, okay, well, this is 
this is where I need to ask you to bring your business to our bank. So I think that in six months, I don't remember exactly what the number was, but we closed over $5 million in business or something like that. And so that probably was the most memorable because it was very, a very unique <laughs> and, and, and different experience. Wow. I find this to be like particularly insane, actually, because I'm thinking now about how much would be involved with me switching banks. So yes. if you can remember, what do you feel like was kind of the tipping point for most people in convincing them to, to pull out of their existing bank and come to you guys? What were you offering? I guess that was, you know, different, better. Engagement the way we treat people, customer service. So the, at the end of the day, the, we had to find a hole that we would fill because it's not easy to have people move their money, right? And, and, and the bank, that the, the predominant bank in the area was a big bank. It was a bank where there were locations everywhere, which sounds like a great thing. But in a small town community, people want to feel like they're part of the community. They don't want to deal with a person that they don't know when they walk in a teller line. When they go ask for a loan, they don't want to deal with a stranger. They want to, it's like cheers, the bar. They want to be where everybody knows their name. And so it was treating people the way that the big bank wasn't, it was finding the hole, wasn't willing to treat them. It was saying you matter, whether you're the farmer who grows tobacco or you're the, you're the man who runs the only business in this town that makes money. It doesn't matter. And it was the prospecting and engagement process, showing people how it could be that made people change. You know what I love most about this is that so many people would look at this scenario where they, you know, maybe it's a small town and they see one huge dominant business and they think instantly, you know what, there's no way I could actually compete with them. But this goes to show that treating people like people, real people, being kind, being engaging with them, that alone can be a differentiator. Absolutely. And it's, you know, it's, it's one of the things that I say all the time about doing the common things uncommonly well. You know, big banks, and it's, it's not just banks, but big successful businesses have done a lot of things right. But I guarantee you every time a smaller business is going to be able to be more personal it's going to be able to be more touchable and you're going to be able to treat people the way they want to be treated. And that's a common thing that if you do it uncommonly well, you're going to win the business almost every single time. When I, when I took over from my, my first pharmaceutical sales territory in Atlanta, Georgia, so this wasn't a small town. The territory was ranked 525th out of 525 in the country. <laughs> it was dead last. And I remember saying to my boss, I'm not going to go in and sell these people. I'm going to go in and get to know these people. And for three months or maybe six months, I don't remember, you're going to think, why did I hire her? But if you stick with me, these people are going to like me. They're going to trust me. And a year later, that territory that was 525th was number one in the country. Why? Not because I'm great, but because I treated people the way they wanted to be treated because I got to know them because I engaged with them. That is amazing advice. I love that so much. Now, Kendrick, I would be respectful of your time. I've got one final question for you. Yeah. What would you say has been the best investment you've ever personally made in the context of growing your business? And this can be in the form of time, money, tools, products, services, or otherwise. So I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to give you two answers to this, which really is not the point of the question. But the best investment I made was an accident. So uh, if you rewind seven years ago, I was just about to quit my, pharmace just quit my pharmaceutical sales job 
I had no clue. I knew how to sell. I knew how to do nothing else when it comes to business. And I was in a mastermind with um, a person I did not know. It was full of people I did not know. And and you know this person. But I was in a mastermind with a woman named Jenny Shi. Mm -hmm. And we were colleagues, didn't know each other. Jenny Shi and I are about as opposite as day and night. Um, We just are. We laugh about it all the time. The best investment of time I've ever made was Jenny said to me, um, Jenny said to all of us, I'm closing some sales. I think I could close more. Does anybody have a sales book that I could read? And I said, Hey, you know what? I don't have a sales book you can read, but I'm, I, I have no business. I have no idea what I'm doing, but I do know sales. Let me hop on the phone with you and see if I can help. 90 minutes later, Jenny, she said, my dear, this is what you are meant to do in the world. And I said to her, I have no idea what I just did. So the best investment of my time was A, offering to help someone when I felt like I could help them, and B, shutting up and getting out of my own way and letting Jenny tell me how to turn this into a business because I had no idea. That's the truth. I love that. I think that's a great place to wrap this up. Yeah, it is. It is. And and you know what? I was going to say that there too, but they're not. I would not be here today had I not, had Jenny not said that, had that not happened. So that's absolutely, it's an accident, not part of the master plan, but that's, that's the best investment I've ever made. A happy accident at that. Absolutely. (laughs) All right. Well, Kedrick, thank you for joining us. Can you tell everyone listening today where they can go to learn more about you and everything that you're up to? Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me here. And I just want to say to anybody listening who's starting out or maybe you're not starting out, but I, I, you know, after being in business for seven years, I know that there are some ups and downs. I just want you to know that as cheesy as it sounds, although I don't know you, I do believe in you and I believe in your business and I believe in your ability to do this. If I can do this, a hick from the hills of Tennessee, anybody can. And I would be honored to help you with all of our free stuff at kendrickshope.com. Beautiful. And we'll link to that in the show notes as well. Kendrick, thank you again for joining us. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode of the Side Hustle Project, I would love your support. Head on over to the Apple Podcasts app and give us a rating. And as always, you can catch every episode of the Side Hustle Project on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in.